0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in partnership with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. When we think of Nepal, we think of its high Himalayan mountains, or maybe the highlands around Kathmandu. But somewhere between a quarter and a third of the country is nothing like that. Instead, it's marshy, forested, at one time malaria infested swampland along the southern border of India. This is the Terai, the most productive region of Nepal, and also the focal point for the one time Kingdom of Nepal's conquest. Maximilian Mork writes about the region's history in his latest book, Plains of Discontent A Political History of Nepal's Terai, 1743 to 2019, published earlier this year. Maximilian Mork is an author and researcher specializing in Asian borderlands. He is also the author of By the Way of the Border. His research has focused on a wide range of issues including political dissent, uh, individual reform in Myanmar, illegal status of Tibetan refugees, migrant workers in Thailand and citizenship in Nepal. His writing has published in Hamal, South Asian, Huffington Post, and East Asia Forum. Today, Maximilian and I talk about the Terai, how it relates to Nepal's history, and how development in this region may have had some unintended consequences. So, Maximilian, thank you so much for coming on the show today to talk about the Terai. You know, reading about the Tarai it made me feel kind of really, <laughs> really kind of awkward and um, in that I never really thought about the parts of Nepal that weren't mountains and, I guess, the hills. Um, but this is a whole region of the country that's, I think, quite different from how outsiders might stereotypically think about Nepal. Um, so where exactly is this region of Nepal, and what makes it different from, as I said, the hills and mountains that make up the our images of, of Nepal from outside the country?
1: Yeah, so effectively, we can kind of crudely split Nepal into three geographic zones. You have, of course, the Himalaya, uh, you know, home to Mount Everest, and what is really synonymous with uh, Nepal as a nation. Sitting a little bit below that, you have the mid hills, which is where um, Kathmandu, the, uh, the capital, is located. And then the third and final geographical zone is something, as you mentioned, it's not something we would uh, typically associate with Nepal, but it's the flat plains. And so these flat plains are kind of hemmed in on all three sides by the uh, Indian border. Um, and what makes us different from Nepal is it's flat. I think the highest point in the tri is so around 80 meters above sea level. Um, but it's a very different way of life. There's a lot of culturally, differently, linguistically, uh, differently, of course, geographically, very different to to the rest of Nepal.
0: Um, so let's talk about some of these cultural and linguistic differences. I mean I mean what what differentiates the people that live in this region from again, the the people that live in, say, Kathmandu and, and in the in you know, the hill zones, I guess?
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, the, the first thing to kind of point out is over the last 50, 60 years, there's been um, a lot of kind of demographic change, but also uh, in terms of domestic migration, um, people have moved from the Terai to Kathmandu, from Kathmandu down to the Turai. So a lot of these kind of um, the differences have kind of um, changed a little bit um, over the last couple of uh, generations. But traditionally, when, when we look at kind of population groups in the Terai, there'd be kind of two major groups that kind of stand out as having their differences. Uh, from populations in uh, Kathmandu, um, basically from the hill Nepalese. Um, and they'll be Madhesis and Tarus. So these are population groups in the Tarus. Uh, they are considered indigenous to, to the Tarai. Um, and they're really quite interesting. And so they've lived in the Terai for so long, uh, they've actually became what's considered almost immune to to malaria. So one of the reasons... In, in the toai had these hugely thick forested um, kind of swampy foresty plains but no one no one would go into them because there was such high prevalence of malaria but for Taru communities because they had lived there for you know hundreds if not thousands of years they developed a sort of immunity so they were able to live in areas of the country where other people would just fear to dread. So they were able to develop their own uh, language, their own culture, their own uh, way of life and their relationship with the forest and with the kind of natural resources of Nepal. That was very, very different from what was going on in, in Kathmandu. And also the Madeshi population. Um, so they are people, again, from, from the Terai. Many of them are indigenous to Nepal. They were living in areas... Uh, before the kind of Nepali state encroached onto them, but also a significant number migrated uh, to Nepal around two hundred years ago. Uh, they were invited to do so by local uh, landlords, but as a result of that, uh, many of them would they look different. Uh, they uh, tend to speak maybe Bhojpuri or Maithili um, or other variants of or dialects of Hindi. Um, and so they have a very different kind of cultural outlook to many people uh, from the hills. And as a, as a result, there's been a lot of um, political con- uh, political debates and contestations, particularly um, from the 1960s onwards, when there was a kind of real bit of soul searching going on in the uh, Panchayat period, which is effectively an um, absolute monarchy which ruled Nepal from 1961 to 1990, where there was a lot of um, King Mahendra particularly was quite involved in creating and shaping the Nepali identity. Um, and that was a identity that was um, very much rooted in the hills and the Himalaya, leaving Madeshis and Tarus really deliberately excluded from not just the, the identity, um, but also from citizenship in many places. So really around this period, it's a lot of questions were kind of being asked what does it mean to be nepali and what is the relationship with being nepali in the hills so effectively can someone from the plains um that connect really there's an open border so they connect imperceptibly with with uh, with north india can they be seen and allowed to be identified as, as nepali
0: so I mean, speaking speaking of the Nepali identity, I mean, th- the idea of Nepal isn't actually that old. I mean, it, it kind of grows out of the, I guess the the, the expansion of, of the kingdom of Nepal in the in the 18th century, I believe. Um, so let's actually talk about kind of kind of this period of expansion. I mean, how does Nepal, I guess, quote unquote, um, expand into this region?
1: Yeah, so effectively what happens is the kind of creation of um, modern day Nepal starts with um, Pritvi Narayan Shah, who is uh, king of the Gorkha kingdom. At this time, Nepal was really run by um, quite a fractured small series of kind of petty rajas and and kingdoms. And over a series of decades, Pritvi Narayan Shah basically unifies or expands the uh, Gorkha state. Contemporary academics often use now now the term colonization, um, but effectively he expanded east, west, south and north uh, from his very small uh, holding of Gorkha to uh, capture Kathmandu. He captured huge swathes of modern-day India, including Uttarakhand, Sikkim, uh, Uttar Pradesh and Bihar, but also um, so as he was expanding in the hills, he was also expanding down to to the Therai. And this is really important because... Um, under Pripyat Shah, the control of the Tarai provided huge economic gains. And actually, he used the wealth of the Tarai to kind of fund his burgeoning military. Um, originally, we look at the Tarai, we talk about its wealth in timber. That- um, but effectively, during this period for prit rin Shah, the, the wealth of the Tarai really came from land grants. So these land grants were given as a form of payment to victorious officers. This was a really useful and handy way of paying staff because it means the coins of the Gurkha Empire could lay undisturbed. You didn't need to give out gold and silver. Uh, you could just give out new land that you, you had newly conquered. And this is quite important, because what happened then is you see these soldiers, generals, and nobles of the Gorkha elite were given this new land, but a lot of them wanted to stay in Kathmandu or wanted to stay in other areas of the hills, mainly because of the malaria in the Terai. But they needed to work the land, they needed to pay the tax revenue, but at the time the Terai was relatively underpopulated, so they engaged local landlords and um, kind of labor agents, both in Nepal and uh, northern India, to attract people. Uh, To attract settlers and migrants to to work the land, and predominantly they were found from modern day Uttar Pradesh and Bihar. And in that time, particularly around the late 18th century, Bihar was having a really calamitous time. There was a couple of there was one famine which kind of decimated all of northern northern Bihar in 1783. Another one in 1791, and then a few years later, the rice crop almost fell across the whole state. So really, you, you see a kind of push and pull. Um, factor for people from northern India into the Terai. So really, as not just was Pripyam Narayan Shah creating them kind of modern day and unifying the modern day Nepali state, he was also, his conquest and subsequent land reform, development and migration really changed the, changed the social, economic and agricultural fabric of the Terai and left lasting legacies that continue to impact, potentially we can say disrupt, Nepali politics to this day.
0: Um, So how does this expansion then come into contact with with British India? Uh, I mean, with with the East India Company, and then with um, and then with the Raj? How does this new, I guess, unified kingdom, I guess, have its relations with with its much larger southern neighbor?
1: Very contentiously, <laughs> we can say. Um, so they were both both expanding. So obviously the uh, the the Gurkha Empire was expanding down from uh, by this point Kathmandu, and East India Company was rapidly expanding from its base in uh, in Bengal in Il Calcutta. And after a few years of this kind of mutual expansion, soon they had a uh, a common border, and this was causing all sorts of problems. It's it's important to note at that time. Um, the uh, Nepali state, but also most of South Asia and even Southeast Asia, uh, Southeast Asia, their form of kind of uh, territorial sovereignty is very different to what we have today. It's more spheres of influence. You didn't have these fixed lines on a map. Of course, the East India company loved fixed lines on a map. So it doesn't take too much to see um, how they would, how these kind of two schisms would would, would collide. And inevitably, it led to war. You saw many decades of uh, land disputes, of small skirmishes. Um, but it wasn't until 1814 when the East India Company went to war um, with Nepal. This war lasted for two years. And by 1816, the East India Company were victorious. But it was very hardly fought. And in around 1815, you can read go back and read letters from commanders in the East India Company, and they're definitely realizing they've bitten off potentially more than they could chew. And in fact, the Terai plays a very pivotal role in uh, the 1814-1816 Anglo-Nepal War, is that at least one battalion of the East India Company suffered more losses from malaria than they did from fighting. So really, we see the Terai as this kind of malarial, geostrategic, military tool that people fear, fear to uh, to dread. But a- after 1816, you have the what's called the Sagauli Treaty, uh, named after a small town in northern Bihar, um, and this effectively, this was a, a peace treaty, which um, gave peace between the East India Company and uh, Nepal. But it saw it was quite um, humiliating terms for many Nepalis. They had to give huge swathes of land back. Uh, and this is land, not just in the, a lot of land in the western Terai. Um, so today, which is, is around uh, Nepal, Ganj and extending into um, Uttar Pradesh, but also land in, in Uttarakhand and Sikkim. Um, and the seli treaty is also where we saw for the first time that um, the East India Company were allowed to or had a, a caveat where they could employ foreign employ Nepali soldiers in their own regiment which is gave birth to modern-day Gurkha regiment um, so they had quite a so after 1816 you have around four decades where the Nepalis are quite annoyed at this uh, rather humiliating territory and um, but then, in 1857, events in India really reshape anglo nepal relationships. So, so for the four decades, as I mentioned, from 1816 to 1857, they have kind of a rumbustious and strained relationship. But then, as we know, 1857 major impacts in India, which is now 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 known as the First War of Indian Independence, but was then known as the Indian Mutiny or the Sepoy Mutiny, and at this time you know, when you go back and read accounts of this time, there was really for a couple of weeks and months, if not the British position, or I, should, I shouldn't say British, I said the East India Company position in India was really rather precarious. And yet, Jung Bahadur Rana, who's um, who leading Nepal at that time, he had a really big decision to make. He had a not insignificant sized army he could make a big impact on the mutineers or the East India Company. And in the end, he decided to back the East India Company. And in fact, he led a regiment to attack uh, mutineers in Lucknow. He also then passed legislation which banned mutineers from seeking sanctuary or refuge in, in Nepal. They would effectively be pushed back and given to the East India Company. Now, he did this because he knew that were the East India Company successful in suppressing the uh, the mutiny, which they were? He could expect big rewards, and he did. In so the next year, in eighteen fifty-eight, he was given huge tracts of the uh, what's called the Naya Muluk, um, in, which is in the western Terai. So he was given a lot of the land that Nepal lost four decades earlier. He was given it back, but also we now saw the cementing of a really powerful and strong relationship between uh, the East India Company. Soon to be the British Raj after after eighteen fifty eight and Nepal that had a really important impact on the Terai as I mentioned for um for many many years the Terai was kept relatively untouched as this malarial battleground Nepal was quite it had a lot of um, geopolitical and geostrategic advantages you have the Himalaya to so its north which is obviously very difficult to transport military battalions. Um, but then in the Terai, you have this malarial swamp, which is very dangerous. But for the first time, now that you had this friendship treaty between between the British Raj and Nepal, no longer did you need to keep all of this timber, keep all of this uh, the Terai, this malarial barrier. You could start to harvest it. So for the first time, after Nepal doesn't have, it can no longer expand further because there's no nowhere else to go. It's surrounded by British India. It can't make money from external expansion it has to look inwards and to do that it starts to plunder the terrain. Um, and interestingly just to touch on that this is another link with northern india is the Terai was full of some very very high quality timber and after 1857 the uh, british india goes on a huge expansion drive for for railways i think there was 34 um miles of railway in 1854, so just three years before the mutiny, just 34 miles of railway in all of India. And then 20 years later, there was over 10,000 miles because the British Raj was uh, militarily concerned. They were laying railways everywhere. But to do this, you need a huge amount of timber, timber which uh, Nepal was very, very happy to, to sell to them. So you have a number of interesting kind of um, events and uh, themes that kind of shape not just Anglo-Nepal relationships, but they really kind of take place and really influence the later political developments of the Tarai.
0: Um, I, do quick, I do want to briefly mention, um, maybe ask for more detail, about the hunts that the British royals kept on doing um, in this part of the world. And I guess, I mean, how were how those hunts, I guess, a symbol of Nepal's relationship with, um, with the British Empire?
1: this is an, another aspect of um, British Raj and Nepal relationships taking place and being shaped by the terrain. So at this time, particularly under the British Raj, you know, the image of um, of the British India and hunting is really kind of synonymous. <laughs> um, and of course, and so there was a lot of hunting that uh, the British Raj went on in their spare time, particularly in the Punjab and UP, but really, where some of the best hunting in South Asia was the Tarai. And that's mainly because of the malaria. Because of the malaria, it's very dangerous to go hunting tigers. So you actually had these preserves of rhinos, of tigers. But again, under the ranas, there was a closed border. So uh, you couldn't, uh, Westerners or uh, non nepalis or Indians couldn't just enter Nepal. You had to be invited by the ranas. So what the ranas did, it was really quite clever, is the ranas had two concerns. They wanted to develop Uh, their relationship with the British, but they also didn't want to, in their own words, pollute the uh, capital of Kathmandu by having uh, foreigners, non-Hindus, come there and, you know, come there, eat there and and stay there. So what they did is they kept them safely away from Kathmandu in the Terai. They would put on these incredibly lavish uh, hunts. Um, and then after they'd shot, in some cases, hundreds of tigers, uh, rhinos, elephants, all this kind of stuff, they would retire to all the kind of pomp and ceremony from a Victorian hunt, all the kind of cliches and stereotypes that you could imagine, and then they would discuss politics, and they would discuss um, some of their schemes and uh, manifestations. Um, It's really rather interesting, and interestingly again, for parts of the Terai, the first time the, uh, the government had ever laid a road, installed electricity, or kind of you know common um, uh, social goods, was not for the <laughs> citizens of Nepal or the um, people living in the Terai, but it was for Western hunters. So there's it, the the history of the uh, of the Terai, the British is quite interlinked with uh, shikar, the uh, the hunt.
0: So we've mentioned malaria a few times um, in our in our conversation uh, and how it kind of acted as a as a barrier to um, a barrier to invasion, a barrier to uh, inward migration. Um, but of course, uh, a lot of effort is spent eventually to eradicate malaria uh, in this part of Nepal, which has some unintended consequences. And I wonder if you might uh, talk about what some of those unintended consequences were.
1: Yeah, of course. I think really it's hard, if not impossible, to overstate the importance of the eradication of malaria um, in Nepal's recent history. And malaria, while it was really concentrated in the Thrai, it was prevalent in Kathmandu as well. Um, And it was by far Nepal's biggest public health concern. And in the 50s, um, when kind of DET was being uh, pioneered, um, the United States Overseas Mission and the Nepali government agencies saw malaria as a mass public health concern. But also it was something that now due to DAT and kind of te- technological advancements, they could finally do something about. So what there was in from 1954 onwards, there was this huge malarial eradication campaign that started in Kathmandu and then worked its way into the terrain. The thing is it's there's nothing wrong with eradicating malaria absolutely absolutely not it's you know it was killing um, hundreds of people a year it was causing havoc it's something that uh, it should have been eradicated the problem was this policy was take was developed and implemented in a vacuum there was no consideration for what this would have on tarus. Now, again, as as I mentioned a little bit earlier, Tarus had, it wasn't a complete immunity, but they had a resilience to malaria, which means they could deal with it far, far better than than anyone else. And in fact, malaria had formed a cornerstone of their political agency for many, many years. So because of their natural resistance, um, it meant Tarus could do things in the forests of the Tarai that other groups were not able to. They could move and decamp to the edges of forests where malaria was most pervasive, and few non turu dared to tread. Which also meant they could avoid the burdensome taxation demands of the state and live without recognition of the state's kind of tax authority. In a way, you can kind of see if you're familiar with kind of um, if you're familiar with um, ideas of uh, Zomia and kind of hill uh, hill tribes in Southeast Asia moving to the moving to the hills to avoid kind of repressive governments that's kind of happening here in south asia with the terai so really the malarial eradication program pacified the terai but it soon led to Tarus being minorities in their own home for over 200 years since prithvi Narayan shah kind of unified nepal and, and um, unified nepal including the terai into the Nepali state, there was a long, for over 200 years of the government trying to uh, foster domestic migration from the hills to the Terai to expand government presence there, but also to work the land to make it more profitable. But for all of these years, it had not worked. The resettlement program down to the Tarai had not worked because of malaria. And yet now malaria was gone. The resettlement program really took place at huge, huge speed. And you can look at the, the demographic shifts that by 2001, for the first time ever, according to the 2001 census, over 50% of the Nepali of the Nepali state lived in the um, And you can go back and look, and I, I, I mentioned in the book as well about the government resettlement program, which took place in the, from the 50s, 60s and 70s, which saw um, huge amounts of of land being reallocated to new arrivals from the hills in the terrain this land was given on very generous terms often 10 years tax-free sometimes people were given a free uh, some free cattle or a bullock or some cash in advance to try and develop the tarai but what this did is this also marginalized indigenous communities in the tarai many of them lost their land um, and it it really changed the demographics of the Terai from somewhere which was predominantly Medeshi's, Tarus, and other indigenous communities to one with a huge amount of um, Hill Nepali presence for the first time. This wasn't just to economically develop the Terai; this was also to um, pacify, to weaken um, some of the anti or not to some of the non-hill Nepali identity, um, that was, uh, prevalent in, in the Terai at that time.
0: There was another kind of part where you talk about kind of some of the unintended consequences of, um, let's say kind of well-meaning initiatives, um, which is, uh, I guess the conservation efforts, uh, of the forests of the Terai. um, Yeah, which which I was talking about also does have kind of some unintended consequences on the people living there. Um, Again, could you kind of get into some more detail about how um, the conservation efforts ended up not really, well, potentially not working for this part of Nepal?
1: Yeah, of course. In environmental conservation, um, particularly in the terrain, it's not a new thing to to Nepal. The Ranas um, were a, a big fan of environmental protection, but not from this holistic view of the environment, it was more because they wanted to uh, protect tigers so they could uh, hunt them more effectively. But um, in the the move to establish national parks, which uh, took place under the uh, Pinchayat period, we get from 1961 to 1990, it saw local, ter- predominantly Taru and other minority communities living in the Tarai kicked off their land to establish these national parks which would then um, the idea was you know, preserve and uh, preserve the environment and preserve the forests of the tribe And it is not a it, it was necessary at that time because due to uh, this huge migration to the tribe and the, from the 50s onwards, deforestation uh, was expand, was increasing the forests were being uh, decimated. But the important thing is here, they were not decimated by Taru communities who'd been living sustainably in these forests for generations. Who, For them, the forests were not a you know a resource bank they could withdraw from, but it played really pivotal parts in their cultural, uh, social and religious life as well. So what happened is they were forcibly displaced um, and then effectively a barrier was erected around the national park. So the Tarus were no longer allowed to stay overnight in national parks. The government said no one's allowed to stay in national parks because this is going to, uh, you know, damage the environment. Except, you could stay overnight in a national park if you could afford the several hundreds of dollars to stay in a luxury safari lodge. So, really, and then there's a lot of studies that have been done in this afterwards. Um, is the displacement of indigenous communities for the creation of national parks led to long-lasting socio-economic? Um, complications and problems for these displaced communities, because the paltry amount in compensation they were given did not nearly compensate for the loss of their, you know, ancestral homes. But also I find it really, it's quite galling that um, you, you know, if you can imagine, if you can place yourself in their shoes, you've been living sustainably in this forest for hundreds of hundreds, if not thousands of years. And then the very same government who's been plundering uh, the forest of the Terai kicks you out because they say they they know better. They know how to look after it, and then right to this day, the uh, national parks are monitored by the Nepal Army, um, and so you're you're kept away um, by force from your ancestral home to protect the environment you're already protecting. And I think the other important thing here is there's been a, a number of really interesting bits of research by human rights organisations and journalists documenting. Um, the human rights violations, the extrajudicial killing and disappearances of minority communities trying to access the the forests of the Tarai. Um, As I said, many of them are arrested, some of them have been tortured, some of them have been tortured to death, others have been murdered by state security forces. So, on the one hand, the government is saying they're doing this because they're taking a very strong uh, approach to wildlife conservation. And in fact, the number of you know tigers um, in Chitwan and Bardi National Park have gone up in recent years, but it's really been expense of the local population. So while the um, indigenous communities can be shot, terrorized by state forces to protect uh, the environment, the same government is instrumental in clearing sway of the forest for new roads, for new airports. So it's really quite um, disingenuous uh, for the Nepali government to say everything they do is with environmental conservation in mind, and that um, the suffering and the displacement of indigenous communities is done so with environment environmental protection in mind, given there are the policies um, which have really a disastrous effect on the last remaining areas of forest in the Terai.
0: So I I want to shift now to talk about um, to talk about the politics. Uh, I mean, Nepal, uh, Nepal eventually becomes a democracy, um, which then leads to questions about how to ensure adequate representation for the groups in, in the Terai. how to make sure they're not, um, I guess, uh, how they're not just kind of, uh, under the whims of the majority. Um, but then, but then how, how do these, que- how do these questions about the Terai and the politics within it, how do they change when Nepal, uh, becomes a democracy which i know was not a clean process there was a lot of there was a lot of uh, fighting involved
1: yeah um, so what i'll try and do is condense several decades of kind of political um, developments um, into a couple of sentences so this is relatively quite broad strokes but so nepal became a democracy after the people's movement of 1990 um, but there was a lot of issues and political fighting and stagnations. There are a lot of governments collapsing. It's a bit of a roller coaster or revolving doors. Um, And then in 1996, the Maoists launched a 10 year insurgency against the government. Uh, They were fighting for uh, rights of individuals. They were fighting against caste prejudice. They were fighting against the monarchy. They were fighting against authoritarianism. They had a whole list of 40 demands they they were fighting for. And in, in 2006, again, I'm not going to digress and talk about the war, but um, in 2006, there was a comprehensive uh, peace agreement, um, which saw an interim constitution uh, come through. But then a year after, in 2007, what we call the Mideshi movement, and uh, Medeshi is a kind of political term for for the Tari. Um if, if we talk about the Terai being a geographical term, the Medeshi is a, is a political term. Um, and so the Medeshi movement exploded, this is all of and Medeshi's campaigning um, after the post-war interim constitution ignored their demands for federalism. So really from 2007, we see the explosion of political activism um, and protest in the Terai. not to say there hadn't been protests in the seven decades um, after the as beforehand, but not on this scale. And these you know, movements were tens of thousands of people on the streets, Um, around, this is all to do with the kind of minutiae politics around federalism um, in the uh, new constitution. Um, A a temporary agreement was made, but in 2008, there was another Medeshi movement, um, again, around interim constitution. So from 2008 until 2015, you have these years of political infighting, backstabbing, horse trading, as the um, two different, there was a constituent assembly set up to draft Nepal's um, permanent constitution. And they both failed due to, again, kind of political gridlocks. And these major debates are around um, federalism and what type of federalism would Nepal have? Would it be ethno, um, would it be ethnicity-based? Would it be uh, kind of, and then discussions around proportional representation, what kind of federal state it would be? And these events were at a gridlock and they really, there didn't appear to be any impetus that would change that. But then on the 25th of April, 2000 and, um, 2015 Nepal was struck by, I think going off memory here, but I didn't want to say 7.8 Richter earthquake, which really devastated um, much of the country. I think over 10,000 people died. Um, many, many, many more were injured and Nepal really struggled to, to respond to that partly because of its fractured political leadership. So, there was um, major political parties agreed after um, the the earthquake to fast track the promulgation in a kind of a spirit of unity, and and they did so in September. This fast tracked constitution was promulgated. However, this contained um, this continued to contain discriminatory citizenship requirements, which meant women could not pass on Nepali citizenship to their sons; only a man could pass on citizenship um, to uh, his. Uh, his, his his children, um, and this disproportionately affected Madhesis. Many of them who have cross border relationships due to the open border. It's very common for uh, Nepali and Indian men and women to uh, to marry interchangeably, regardless of uh, what side of the border they live upon. And there were also huge protests around federal boundaries. The whole point of federalism was to give voices to minorities and let people kind of rule their own region. But initially, some of the proposed federal boundaries had. Um, many hill, many districts in the hills, combined with just one or two districts in the Terai. So many in the Terai were very angry. You know, they said, we've been fighting, we've been campaigning for federalism because we want a more equitable state. We want to have our own voice and we don't want to just kind of hear the demands of um, of Hill Nepal. And now we have our federal state and yet these provinces mean we're again going to be minorities. So you saw these huge protests um, which culminated in the border blockade which went on for many, many months, um, which is where... So if you, if you look on a map, um, Nepal o- almost all of its border, accessible border, is with India. There's There was one border crossing with uh, China or one mass international border crossing with China in Tatapani, and that was destroyed during the earthquake. Um, so really, Nepal was incredibly reliant on land imports from India. So during the border blockade, Mideshi groups and also with the support of the Indian government basically blockaded major roads and entry points into Nepal, um, which meant, uh, you know, there was huge surges, um, huge inflationary surges in the price of petrol, uh, cooking fuel, but also in the ability to get medicines in and out of the country. Um, I think one important point here to mention is during the earthquake, while uh, many parts of the Himalaya, but particularly the kind of central hill part of Nepal were devastated, the Terai was relatively um, unimpacted. So that kind of, on the one hand, it hardened this kind of hill-Badeshi uh, hill divide, Um but basically, so that border blockade went on for many, many months. And then um, it was in early 2016, it, um, the, blockade, the blockade was lifted and things went relatively back to normal. Um, and eventually, yeah, Nepal ended up being this, um, this, this federal state. So you saw really this kind of 10 years of intense activism, um, protest in anger um, with it's important to stay here. It's not anger with Hill Nepalese. It's anger of a minority people against a majoritarian state. This is a very common conflict we see around Asia, we see around the world. Uh, but yeah, so from 2006 after the uh, Comprehensive Peace Agreement until really 2016, you have these 10 years of bitter political bitter political infighting. Um, many of those issues have not been fixed to this day.
0: You know, you, you mentioned, you mentioned the, the border blockade, um, and I guess this is a good segue to my to my next question, which is kind of what role does India play in in this region in this whole discussion? Um, I mean, obviously, they did the border blockade, um, but kind of what what role does independent India play in these conversations about about the Terai?
1: Yeah, I think there's um, there's two points to that. One is about the role of India and the Indian government, and also the the role of the open border and how that kind of shapes uh, foreign relationships, but also um, individuals' lives and kind of political debate. So I think it's quite clear that an impartial study of Indian foreign policy to uh, Nepal, it sees itself as a uh, the kind of infamous term, and in Nepal become a big brother, uh, which can be quite condescending at times as well. Um, but I think India has often tried to play both sides apart. Um, if you go back to the uh, Maoist period, there's a lot of reports that they were, well, Many of the Maoist leadership, including Pachanda and Dr. Baburam Bhattarai, were living in exile in India. Um, the so the in that period, the Indian government is both kind of talking to the to the monarchy, it's talking to the Maoists, and then during the um, and Taru movements, they're doing the same thing. Um, they're talking to all sides, trying to I, I guess but perhaps um, find a geopolitical advantage. Um, and I think the important thing to really focus on is the the open border because this is really unique um for the rest of of south asia but not even south asia if you just look at india if you look at india's other borders apart from bhutan and reasons why that's a little bit different in bhutan but they're all dominated by state security forces with um you know very strict and severe restrictions on movement that have massive implications on transborder communities um so the Nepal-India border is effectively, it's open. What that means is people from Nepal and India can cross. Um, they, can, they, they can cross. They don't need visas um, to, to do so. It's not it's not a free-for-all. There are many uh, border checking posts and there are many uh, customs points. So there is obviously uh, taxation that needs to be paid. But on the whole, the border is it's open. There is no wall. There are uh, border... Um, border marking posts, um, which are effectively a white pillar, which maybe stands as tall as your hip, and that marks that marks the border. So for many, um, if you're away from the official border crossing points, you can just stroll across the border, um, which is obviously it's not the case between um, India and Bangladesh, certainly not India and Pakistan. So it's really quite it's really quite unique, and I think there's really advantages to both Nepal and India for this, um, for this open border. But there are some interesting things that go on there. Again, we talk about open border, but um, privileges and socioeconomic status can have a huge impact in how people relate to and interact with the open border. For example, Nepal often closes the borders for elections. Uh, this was most recently done um, in April this year. For uh, the uh, Barra district by election. And the entire indian Nepal land border was shut for 72 hours in November 22 for the general election. This is done under a suspicion of voter fraud or electoral manipula- uh, manipulation from India. I mean, I've yet to see any statist- statistically significant evidence of voter fraud coming from Indian uh, citizens illegally voting in Nepal, but the border's still closed. So what's interesting here is these closures have little to no impact on reducing voter fraud, but they have a huge impact on the lives of individuals in the Terai. It kind of stops people from trans-border communities accessing schools, healthcare, or work. And this really, it kind of gets to the heart of what many people in Terai, um, the heart of their grievances with, with Kathmandu and the Nepali state. They say, well, again, this is just what Yet another poor policy that's resulted from a lack of understanding of border regions and the needs of local transborder populations. And yet, during the 72-hour period, flights between Nepal and India were not cancelled. The border remained open as long as you could afford a flight ticket. And of course, many in the Terai who were most affected by those border closures could not.
0: Um... So I guess to kind of wrap up our conversation, I mean, obviously, you know, things keep on happening even after books are finished. Um, but kind of what's been happening, whether in the Terai or in Nepal in general, um, since you kind of wrapped up uh, the writing of your book, um, have there been any kind of new developments in in either Terai politics or Nepali politics since you since you finished?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, there's always the um this case i think uh, a week after we sent the book to the printers um of course there was a uh, development in the citizenship amendment bill um in the book i talk quite a lot about uh, citizenship and how the the nepali state has gone out of its way to deny access to, to citizenship from for many people from the tarai um as part of government policy that's was slightly amended like, like i said a week after the book went to um to the printer Although, while now it's opened the doors for many um, people from the Terai to gain Nepali citizenship, the reality still remains to be seen whether um, they actually will or not. But I mean, in the, the years that have that have passed, so the book ends in twenty nineteen, we've seen a kind of continuation of ongoing human rights violations, impunity for state forces, um, state security forces operating in the Terai. The kind of the discontent within the Terai it continues. Um, a major point is that federalism, which brought so many out onto the streets in 2015, has failed to provide an equitable state. I mean, federalism, is, it's still early days in Nepal, um, and it has brought around you know, quite a big government restruct- or administrative restructure. But for many, it hasn't provided the new Nepal, the, um, the fair Nepal, equitable Nepal that took them out onto the street, took them to protest that you know, people died in these protests, many more were injured. Um, so I think federalism has been a little bit of a, um, perhaps a disappointment, uh, maybe that's too strong a word, but it's been underwhelming, I think is probably better to say. Um, so a lot of these structural issues that continued are still there and really we should not mistake an absence of protest for content with the status quo. Um, yeah. Well,
0: I think that's a great place to end our conversation with Maximilian Mork, author of *Plains of Discontent, A Political History of Nepal's Terai, 1743 to 2019. Um, Maximilian, I actually have two final questions for you, which are, uh, where can people find your work, not just this book, but all of your work? And what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be?
1: Yep, so you can find the book in uh, all good bookstores in South Asia and internationally on Amazon. And you can find all my other writings and work and research on my website, maximilianmork.com. And for other projects, it's early days yet, but I'm uh, working on a a political history on borderlands in mainland Southeast Asia, Um, but that's... (laughs) many, many years away from being in a, in, a, in a publishable state. But again, that's exploring these kind of same, same themes of um, how states develop their frontiers, um, how in many places, that, for example, if we take Thailand, which I'm currently researching, Thailand was never colonized, and yet its borders were a colonial imposition. Well, of course, there's very, very similarities there with, um, with Nepal.
0: So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Gordon. that's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts, uh, including those by Maximilian Mork. Um, You can follow on Twitter at BookReviewsAsia, that's reviews plural, and you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on all of your podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, joins for a conversation with Lloyd Llewellyn Jones, author of Ancient Persia and the Book of Esther. But before then, Maximilian, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
1: Thank you very much for having me.